Welcome to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. Every weekend, many tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people ride their bikes in the British countryside. But are we taking enough time to really understand and appreciate the things we see and the places we ride through? Or is it all daydreaming about the next cake stop or going hard for that next personal best on Strava? Well, my guest today on The Bike Show has made it her mission to help people discover for themselves the history of the landscape by looking out for the signs and clues that are often hidden in plain sight. Her name is Mariana Jota, and you may well have seen her on the television, presenting documentaries and archaeology shows including Time Team and Britain's Secret Treasures. She's got a degree in archaeology and anthropology from Cambridge University and is a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. She's also known occasionally to ride a bike, and she joins me down a Skype line. Welcome to The Bike Show, Marianne. Thank you so much, Jack. Your new book, Hidden Histories, is subtitled A Spotter's Guide to the British Landscape. What motivated you to write a book about decoding the landscape that's all around us? Well, as you said, my I, I have been known to get on a bicycle, but my my foremost mode of transport is uh, two feet walking along and I spend a lot of time in the outdoors walking hill walking and also through um, studying archaeology I've been fortunate enough to spend time wandering around the incredible British countryside coming across these archaeological sites they're everywhere they're in every parish in the country I think the the driving factor for me to write the book was to answer questions that I've had myself in the countryside saying, how can I tell how old this road is or how old this church is or what that lump or bump in a field might be? And cyclists have the perfect vantage point to see so much of the countryside around them. And you're going at a fast enough pace to, to really explore quite a, quite a wide, um, quite a, a long distance, but you're going slow enough to be able to spot and, and spot the details and stop and explore further if you want to. There's an incredible amount of freedom that a bicycle gives you. Well, unfortunately, we haven't managed to meet up to go for a ride together and uh, do a rolling interview where we talk as we ride. But we're going to do the next best thing, which is we're going to close our eyes and imagine ourselves out riding on a beautiful, warm summer's day. We've got the sun on our backs, the wind in our hair. And as we ride gently through the British countryside, Marianne, you're going to point out some of the things that we see along the way and some of the hidden histories that you uncover in your book. Well, actually, hang on a minute. We don't even need to wait for a warm summer's day. If you don't mind, you know, putting on the old um, merino wool layers. Now, sort of winter and early spring is actually a fantastic time to do landscape spotting because you've got less vegetation in the way. And you know those days when you get that beautiful, bright, low winter sun that like screeches across the landscape and you get that kind of crystal clarity. Those are fantastic days because you get more definition from the shadows of earthworks, ridge and furrow, different bits in the soil alongside hedgerows. You actually see so many more details when the summer is not in the way. Well, that is a very good point, Marianne, and I stand corrected. We're going to be rugged up, nice and cosy, and it's going to be a cold, crisp winter's day as we ride along. And we're going to be riding along the roads. We're not going, going to be doing too much off-roading. 
And maybe we should start by talking about the road network and, and how the roads came about, how you determine what kind of road you're on and what kind of history it might have. Roads are super fascinating. We normally absolutely take them for granted and our focus is on you know whether there's potholes whether we're going to get run down by some crazy car driver but actually if you're in a safe place and you can kind of really speculate on on the road around you um you've kind of got three three elements to consider one is that roads are by design articulating features as the archaeologists call them they join places to each other and so you know that if you can puzzle out the history of a road, you can sort of puzzle out something about the history of the place that you're coming from and the place that you're going to. Um, obviously, the British Isles has been um, permanently inhabited since um, since the end of the last ice age, so about 12,000 years. And all those people have, generation after generation, been travelling through the landscape, sometimes further distances, sometimes shorter distances, but those activities make marks in the landscape that we can spot now. So you've got prehistoric ridgeways, you've got trackways, um, sometimes keeping along the high ground. Um, the, the ridgeway that runs from Oxfordshire to Avebury is a fantastic example. And then you've got a, a bunch of medieval streets and, and lanes. One of the most identifiable features as you're pedalling along, particularly if you find yourself pushing up a hill or whizzing down one is you know you get those um country lanes where it's almost like you're in a tunnel and the sides are kind of rising up um behind you it's almost like the road has sunk down into the ground those are called hollowways and hollow way that's the origin of the name and most of the time they've been created by simply the 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 thousands of feet and animal hooves and and wheels from wooden carts, mostly in medieval times and beyond, but some of them actually have their origins in in prehistory as well, perhaps from the Neolithic, the Late Stone Age, or the Bronze Age. So you could be travelling in the in the kind of the tracks of people who were living in that area of Britain easily a thousand years, probably fifteen hundred years, maybe four thousand years. Well, every school child is taught that among the many things that the Romans did for us was, uh, was to build our roads. So how would you know if you were riding along a Roman road? And is it true that all Roman roads are perfectly straight? It's an excellent question. Um, a lot of straight roads are Roman roads. Uh, most Roman roads are straightish, but not all of them. Um, the, the two kind of most famous not straight Roman roads are the ones that follow along Hadrian's Wall and the Antonine Wall, which is further north in Scotland, um, because they followed the high ground. Uh, well, the wall followed the high ground and the road followed the wall because it was a military way and it was there to service the forts and fortlets along the, along the route. In the rest of the country, it is true that Romans liked to build straight roads and they had incredibly good techniques to survey the landscape and then plot a straight route from A to B to C to D. But that said, they were also incredibly pragmatic and so they wouldn't build a road directly up a hill or down into a, a bog um, if there were a slightly more obviously common sense route 
so Roman roads are straight in sections. Now, the only thing is about Roman roads is that um, often if it's a modern road now, the modern road is wider than the original Roman road. And so the evidence that you're looking for as you're cycling along the kind of modern ribbon of tarmac might actually be hidden or lost unless you were to excavate. So sometimes Roman roads are actually more conspicuous on, on sections that are now footpaths or bridleways where you've got some of the, the surface features preserved. There are actually a number of Roman milestones that you might spot if you see a kind of circular, a cylindrical stone on the side of the road. It could be a Roman milestone, which is pretty cool because it's been there for 2000 years. We think probably they were painted with the distance to the nearest fortress or legionary town and with the names of the um, the emperor whose reign it was when it was con uh, when it was erected. Some of them you can see the engravings and then it was probably painted inside the engravings. Others appear to have never been engraved and so chances are they were probably just painted and 2,000 years worth of erosion and, and um, exposure to the weather means that all the paint has gone. But you will also see little bits of um, ditches I think a lot of us did this in, in school, you know, the kind of cross section of a Roman road where you've got um, the, the agar where they kind of raised up the, the kind of the central section of the, of the roadway and then um, metalled it down. So you kind of stamp down a, a foundation layer of smaller gravel. And the origin of us describing metalled roads now is actually from the Latin metallum, which means quarry. It's effectively a quarried stone road, and we still call it metalled, which is pretty cool. Were the Romans starting from a completely blank canvas when it came to roads, or were they really just improving what was already there? Um, it's, it's a really good question. It's most likely the case that in certain areas, there already were pre-existing Iron Age, perfectly serviceable roads. It's it's um it's a myth to think that you know people were kind of dwelling in in bogs with with straw sticking out of their hair before the Romans turned up with civilization. Certainly, the Romans brought a lot a kind of a whole package of new cultural and political ways of being. But Iron Age Britain was quite sophisticated and organised. It was a hierarchical culture. Um, Britain was divided into different tribes, but these tribes were interacting they were trading they were collaborating and it means that people were traveling so some of the roads were pre-existing iron age roads and at that point you know the roman soldiers can set off at a fast pace and off they go to kind of conquer or um court or you know befriend the local leaders depending on what kind of resistance they were meeting um but other areas um, it's probably likely that in the way that a, a kind of a modern military operation would um, would conduct itself, you might actually have the, the kind of the forward guard of the Roman army moving ahead over whatever terrain they, they come across. And then you've got a whole team, a vast team of road building and surveying and and the people with the kind of the skills and the kit and the the kind of the hardcore um, materials to build the roads coming up behind the army. So the guys at the front weren't saying, oh, well, hang on a minute, we're going to get to we're going to get to London in a minute. But first of all, we have to build a road to, to get there from the coast. 
they weren't they were just crashing on ahead and then someone's building a building the road behind them so then then the frontline soldiers can be resourced and kept fed and watered and you know have their sandals repaired and get letters from home saying oh i miss you it's very sunny here in rome but they were very good at building roads it has to be acknowledged the romans were were pretty on it and you don't get any roads that are the quality of Roman roads until the 1700s. There is a bit of a black hole in road building. The next proper lot of road building are the turnpike roads um, in the sort of modern age of improvement. And do these new turnpike roads have any defining characteristics as you look at them? Would you be able to tell that you were riding along one? Turnpike, as in turnpike roads, was actually literally a pike, a, a bar that you turned in order to to allow someone to pass. They generally tend to be quite straight. Um, You'll get uh, milestones and mileposts saying, you know, six miles to Sirencester or what have you. Look out for milestones and mileposts. Distance markers became compulsory on turnpikes because um, you had stagecoaches and stagecoaches would charge passengers and whatever else they were, whatever goods they were carrying, they would charge them for the mileage that they had carried them for. And so there needed to be a standardised objective system of, yes, we've carried you 20 miles. So this is the this is the the bill. Look out for toll houses. Um, so sometimes you'll get them. They're really close to the road. Um, because they don't want to, you know, miss anyone passing by. Sometimes you get them with with quite quirky aspects. So you get kind of slightly bizarre diagonal walls so that you've got windows looking out both directions of the road. And perhaps if it's at a junction, you'll have a little turret or a tower with windows all around. So whoever's manning the toll gate can see who they need to collect money from as they're trundling up the road. And how about Drover's Roads? There's, to my mind, an incredible romance about the Drover's Road. These were interesting people who travelled long distance in a time when most people didn't travel much at all. And there is a kind of buccaneering spirit to the Drover. And they are also to be found in some really beautiful parts of the countryside. Yes, sometimes. Sometimes the, the Drover's, the kind of like real typical Drover's Roads are are those roads that simply enabled um, farmers to to bring their cattle either to market or sheep or geese or whatever whatever creatures they're they're um, uh, droving. So you get them into market towns. You'll get drove roads, but you'll also get kind of key drove roads moving um, from west to east out of Wales into southern England, and also from north to south out of Scotland and the Highland areas. Um, and kind of borders down into south into the towards southern England where the kind of the major livestock markets were and you get pack horse tracks and trails as well which are pretty cool um you know you know when you go over those bridges where the the parapets are really low kind of surprisingly low and you think oh it'd be pretty easy to fall off this bridge those are often pack horse bridges because the pack horses had panniers on either side of of their you know the horse's belly and so they didn't want a bridge that would get in the way of this horse carrying a wide load and so they built the parapets really low sometimes they've been sort of renewed to make them a bit safer in the modern times but other times you'll get quite a narrow bridge 
um pack horse bridge but and the parapets are still low then chances are you're on a pack horse bridge so as we're riding along our roman roads our old turnpike roads and our drovers roads and our country lanes and something that is almost ever present in the british countryside that you really don't find elsewhere in the world is the hedgerow if you um take the eurostar across to northern france and belgium you look out the window and the first thing you notice or the first thing i notice there's no hedgerows. Why do we have hedgerows and they don't? Haven't we got the most amazing hedges? There are actually 280,000 miles of hedgerow that are still surviving. That's like 450,000 kilometres. And that's only a less than, uh, just over half of what we think there was in, in the late 1800s because in the, in, you know, the past 150 years, um, modern farming means that you've got super huge machinery and they it's easier to work in a big field and so lots of hedgerows have been ripped out and thankfully that's sort of hopefully I think turning a turning corner now and new hedgerows are actually being planted um, but the reason that that sort of beautiful patchwork of, of hedgerowed fields that we we get across Britain um, it seems so quintessentially British but actually if you were to be wandering around um, the Midlands in the 1300s, a lot of it wouldn't have looked like it, it does now because you would have had these great fields, they're called, um, so vast open fields that would have been farmed in strips. So you would have had a, a few strips in a field and I would have been the kind of the, the household next to you farming my little strip. And then, you know, all our neighbours would have their own strips and they'd be marked by ridge and ridges and furrows, maybe like little wooden pegs to say that bit's yours, this bit's mine. But there wouldn't have been hedges or fences or walls between those different strips. So in a village, you might have three fields, the great field, the east field, the field near the mill, for example. And we'd each have a few little strips in each of the fields. So it kind of shares out the the, the good land, it shares out the bad land. We work together to kind of maintain the ditches and, and perhaps the hedges that are around the whole field. But some of these great fields are absolutely massive. You wouldn't be able to see a hedge as far as the eye could see. And then you'd have other sections around the village. You'd have like meadows and you'd have your own little private veggie patch, you know, next to your house. Um, and then you'd have commons where people, we all had the right to graze our animals. We had the right to go and collect firewood um, you know, turn out your pigs to eat the acorns and stuff like that. So you've kind of all got these shared communal rights. But then in the um, Enclosure Act, in the pretty much between 1750 and 1850, these common lands are officially privatised, effectively. And nominally, each of the little individual farmers have the right to claim their strips and kind of be um, paid appropriately but actually most of these subsistence farmers didn't have the means to to meet the requirements because you had to have enough money you had to kind of submit the paperwork for your land and then fence it or hedge it in the stipulated manner and most people they didn't have the money and they only had a tiny little strip of land and so they turned it over to the local sort of wealthy landowner who basically claimed it all and that's why you get, you know, when you look at um, a landscape and it's all kind of rectilinear fields, it sort of looks like a patchwork blanket, but it's quite neat. And you've got those roads, country roads that are quite straight. 
where you think, oh, is this a Roman road? It might not be. If it's a very straight country lane with nice wide verges on either side and probably a hawthorn hedge with oak trees or something like that, maybe beach if it's quite dry, interspersed along the length of the hedge. And you're looking out across a landscape that is mostly rectilinear linear fields, then you're probably in an enclosures area. You're looking at a landscape that was created by the parliamentary enclosures between 1700 and 1850. If you're looking at fields where you've got sheep, it's pasture land, have a look for gentle long lengthways corrugations it's sort of it looks like it's a corrugated iron field you know those kind of lumps and bumps that's called ridge and furrow and that's actually evidence of the medieval strip farming that used to be done in that field but then when the the field was turned over for sheep grazing and fenced or enclosed with um with with hedges it's sort of been preserved in time it's been frozen in time what you're looking at is is the remains of medieval ploughing, but then this later landscape that has boxed it all in with, with Hawthorne hedges. So, Marianne, I'm feeling a little bit conflicted now because I know a little bit about the enclosures and how it was a very bad time for the common man, the, the tenant farmer, the peasants who were driven off the land by the grasping, greedy landlords. But I also love hedgerows. I love looking... <laughs> yeah the flowers that are growing in the hedgerows and listening to the birds. But now you're telling me that these beautiful, wonderful hedgerows are the direct physical consequence and manifestation of one of the most brutal acts of uh, social injustice in the history of this country. I, I think I think you're allowed to because hedgerows are such fantastic habitats for wildlife now and they are part of our historical landscape. So, Marianne, we've been riding along for a little while now. It's been extremely pleasant. I've, I've learnt quite a lot and we've seen quite a lot. I think it's time for, um, for, for a little break. Should we, um, should we stop at the next village? And maybe we can talk about villages. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I was doing my research for Lost Lanes, Southern England, the, the, the first book I did, was that there were villages everywhere and, and the village comprised the church, the pub and the village green. And that was just a universal feature of, um, of the home counties and, and southeastern England. But then coming and doing the research for Lost Lanes Wales, the next book, villages, well, there were villages, but far fewer and, and not quite so classic in that, in that kind of layout. What is the history of the village in Britain? And why do some parts of the country seem to have more villages and more classic picture postcard chocolate box villages than other parts of the country? It's a really good point. There are bits of the country, um, Wales, bits of Wales, bits of the borders, Herefordshire, um, that whole stretch along Offers Dyke. You can go for ages without seeing a kind of Cotswoldy village, like you say, with, you know, ducks on the pond and a pub and a church and blah, 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 because it's still a... Um, landscape that has hamlets or, or farmsteads where you might ha only have one isolated farm or, or perhaps a couple of little houses together surrounded by their land. In other places, it was pretty much the Anglo-Saxons, and there's an 
argument going around archaeological uh, archaeological circles saying it was probably the church as a major landowner as a, a major influencer because the church owned lots of land they had a lot of ties to the people and they demanded tithe which was basically a, a sort of a tax payment in in food or in in wheat for the mill or in animals they they pretty much determined what happened in in the countryside as well as in towns and you get um, a sort of a, a gridding out of villages and you get those kind of nucleated villages where it centres on a manor house and a church and perhaps a, a village green or a piece of common that's that's close by. Along, along with the shape of villages, also look at the shapes of the fields around you. Because if you get hodgepodge little irregular shaped fields, then chances are you're in a, a landscape that was never standardised and and kind of improved. So bits of Cornwall and Devon, bits of the Weald in Sussex, lots of bits of the northwest of England sort of never went through that that standardising, rectangularising process. And villages, again, sometimes you get really standardised, neat little villages, and other times you get a much more ancient settlement system where, where people are much more dispersed, and they've got their own little fields around their farm, and that's pretty much it. And do you have any favourite villages, villages that you love to go back to? Oh, I, well, I think, to be honest, any village with a good pub is a good village in my book. OK, well, I think it's time for a drink and uh, maybe a maybe a spot of lunch. So let's um, let's talk about pubs. Are pubs another Anglo-Saxon import? I mean, it's quite easy to imagine that they might be the um, those Germanic tribes. Uh, they knew a lot about brewing beer. I mean, we always think of Germans and beer and the Bavarian purity laws or whatever it is. Did they bring the pub with them when the when the Anglo-Saxons came in after the after the Romans had gone? No, Jack. No, the the the, the pride of Britain. Um, the first evidence of brewing they think is from the late Stone Age. Um, there's there's a, a site up in in Orkney um, where they found a, a pit that they think was effectively a, a giant pit for brewing beer and they've dated that to about 2500 BC. In Roman Britain there were pubs or places that particularly brewed ale that other people would come to buy from. Now that's not to say that um, people weren't doing a bit of home brewing as well but certainly in towns it was probably a bit more um, organised so that you'd go up the road to get your bread and you'd you'd go you know the other way to to buy your beer so would those be pubs or off licenses would those be uh places where people in roman britain would um lean up against the bar <laughs> have a packet of peanuts with their pint maybe um go and play a bit of pinball or enter a, a quiz competition in the evening or do a bit of karaoke or would they just be taking the beer away with them I reckon probably a bit more, a bit more quiz, a bit more sit down, have a pint, um, pint with your mates. The evidence for pub signs begins with with Romans, and they were obviously fans of wine as well, and they planted vineyards in southern England. Um, and there was a stipulation. The Romans uh, are also quite useful f- for historians as well because they kept such fantastic records. Um, so there was a stipulation in Roman times that you'd have to hang a pole outside the house um, when you were selling um, beer or wine and you'd string it with with either vine or or in Britain with ivy 
to sort of designate that that's what you were. You were a drinking house. And that tradition pretty much carried on into medieval times where there are charters saying that when you've brewed a new batch of beer, you need to hang an ale stake, which effectively looks like you've, you've, you're, you're sticking a, a broomstick out of your out of your door, out of your doorway. So it's kind of a, a slightly um, horizontalish stake, sometimes with a garland hanging on the end of it or a big bit of bush, shrubby bush. And that ale stake indicated basically that you've got beer and, and so the tax collectors can come round and, and claim their, their share of the cash that you're making. And that basically is the origin of the pub signs that we still have now. That's, that's an ongoing little thread of tradition that starts in Roman times. So where did all these crazy pub names come from? The, uh, the bull and bush, the, the red dragon. Um, and what, what do they mean? Can we tell anything about the history of a pub and, and the reasons why it's there by thinking about its name? Yes, you can. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's a good old bit of um, landscape spotting, which you can actually do from inside the pub with a pint in your hand, which is always nice. R- r- relax those legs. Um, pictorial signs were, were obviously quite useful in a time when not everybody was literate. So if you see a picture of a crown or a bull or a stag then you kind of you know know when you're being sent to go to the stag and get three pints and bring them back here sonny then you can trundle down the road and you know where your head is pubs have certainly changed their names sometimes multiple times and often it's to to kind of reflect different patronage through the years so some the most common um pub is the red lion there are more than 500 of those and that's actually often attributed to um, either John of Gaunt, who was a, a noble in the 14th century, or King James I, um, because apparently he was he was a bit of a narcissist and demanded that every public house um, displayed his crest, which was a red lion. But actually, there's there's lots of different English fam- families where there's a, a red lion involved in the heraldic crest. So it could be national allegiance, but it might also have been the origins from a, a kind of a local um, landowning family. But then you get other ones like the King's Head, which is quite common now. A lot of them changed when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries. They used to be Pope's Head pubs and, and they got changed because obviously um, aligning yourself with the Catholic Church was was not such a clever political move and so magically overnight you got far fewer pope's head pubs and you suddenly got lots and lots of king's head pubs because publicans then as now pretty much want a quiet life without the law bashing down the door and is there anything else we should be looking for while we're uh, while we're at the pub i think when you're outside especially if you're sitting in the in the beer garden or you've pushed your bikes into you know through an archway um, then you might be in a, what was traditionally a coaching inn. So have a look around, see if you can see the cobbled surfaces, um, the ranges of buildings, which may have originally been stables. You might see um, drinking troughs. You might see mounting blocks. You might see um, big, thick old iron rings in the in the walls still, which were where horses were tied up. They're always quite quite fun to look to look for. And um, and then again, think about the landscape beyond the pub is this pub at the edge of the edge of the village is it in the heart of the village sometimes it's right next to the church which might suggest that it was uh, initially set up by the church because they were happy to make money out of people buying beer 
Another thing that it's nice to look out for as a cyclist on the walls of pubs are the large cast iron signs, um, the sign of the winged wheel, which is the emblem of the Cyclist Touring Club, um, which was founded in 1878 as a club for people who wanted to go cycling in the countryside. And the club would produce lists of pubs, inns, cafes, hostelries, hotels that were particularly hospitable to cyclists. Maybe um, maybe they had very comfortable beds if they were inns and hotels or served enormous portions of food at, at very decent prices or had somewhere safe where you could lock up your bicycle. And um, pubs would decide that they wanted to um, have that um, seal of approval actually on the pub wall. So you see these enormous um, heavy cast iron signs up there and, and there are there are many dozens of them still around the country and, and there's also a later version which is a kind of enameled sign in uh, in kind of yellow and uh, blue colors uh, yellow and black um the, the original ones are in black and white uh, very distinctive that's absolutely brilliant i didn't know about them i'm gonna have to keep my eye out for them the history of the cycling as well yeah cool well we've enjoyed a, a couple of pints in the pub and, and a bit of lunch i've had a, a very agreeable ham, egg and chips, which is my um, traditional cycling <laughs> lunch of choice. I'm going to go with um, a, a steak pie, please. And a pint of cider. <laughs> steak pie and cider. Very good. Well, it's it's winter and, um, and it does look as though the sun is starting to dip towards the horizon. The days aren't very long at the minute. Do you think, Marianne, we should uh, head off somewhere to watch the sunset? Yeah, why not? It's been a good day. Let's head to the high ground so we get a good old view over our beautiful British countryside. Uh, and if you look up on that hill, can you see slightly strange shapes in cut into the hillside that sort of look like ramparts of a castle? Uh, that's an Iron Age hill fort built um, between probably either 800 BC to about 600 BC. But because this one's quite complex, it looks like it was augmented around 300 BC and these were strongholds constructed by basically the same people who met the Romans when the Romans turned up in 43 AD. So what we see now with a hill fort is is a kind of a, a little shadow of its its kind of former grandeur. So imagine those um, earthworks would have been like cleanly cut, the ditches have had 2,000 years to kind of refill, two and a half thousand years to refill um, but some of the earthworks would have been 15 metres from the, the height of the top of one bank to the ditch in front of it, which is a really formidable defence. And then most of those earthen banks would have had a, a wooden palisade fence on the top of it. So very tightly packed um, vertical timbers. So it's pretty, pretty tough to get into. Normally you get the main entrance on the east and possibly a secondary entrance on the west. And that's quite a standardised thing. As you're heading in from the east, have a look at, at the earthworks, because often you get quite elaborate ways where um, they've built it so that it sort of funnels you in and you're, you're more increasingly oppressed by these, these flanking walls and ditches that push you into this, to this sort of gateway. And then imagine a huge wooden gate with perhaps lookout posts on either side. It might have been carved. It might have been painted. It might, for all we know, have had, you know, the heads of the enemy hanging off it as a, as a kind of means of, of terrifying you into submission. And, um, and then you go inside and there are probably sections for um, 
people to live as and when necessary, uh, places to uh, keep your livestock safe. Um, it's probably likely that it was kind of small, quite small scale warfare between different tribes. And so it would be a cattle raiding party or, you know, they'd steal some of the women and children as slaves or what have you. And, and it'd be a kind of bit of tit for tat. But also, if you've got a really impressive hill fort, partly it's about showing off its power, its prestige. Um, it's it's saying, look, I can, you know, we can build something this formidable. Don't even think about taking us on. And so it might have been as much about impressing the enemy as defending yourself from the enemy. So, uh, so what would they be doing up there um, in these hill forts? Because I've been up on on quite a few hill forts, and I've spent the odd night as well up on a on a hill fort. And they are they're quite wild and um, and windswept places. It would be much more pleasant to be down in the valley, and, and presumably you'd grow better crops down in the valley. What were they doing up on these hills? Or you have to walk all the way up, and the, there's no water, and it's incredibly windy. What was the thinking? So from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, you get a change in the climate. So things are getting colder, um, it's getting wetter, and it means that certain areas of land that were productively farmed, for example, bits of Dartmoor, bits of Wales, lots of upland areas of Britain, basically become unviable. And you get people having to be pushed down onto lowland areas And so you get more population pressure, you get more conflict, you get less less productive harvests. And so the pressures on the people living in prehistoric Britain, bearing in mind that this is a time when you can't call in or buy in extra supplies. If your harvest is failing, then people go hungry. Or you think about your options in terms of raiding the guys up the road or enslaving the guys up the road. Along with that population pressure and that climate um, climate um, change and, and kind of more harsh climate that people are having to deal with, you get this huge upsurge in people producing weapons and you get these big defensive sites that in the Bronze Age didn't really exist. I mean, it wasn't all, all happy, hippie, you know, communal love. But in the Iron Age, people are definitely um, tooling up and, and starting to fight a lot more. And I, I think, yeah, it's sort of it's it's quite sobering to think that's what happens when climate change and people are having to start to fight over basic resources like water and food. Well, that is a very um, salient and uh, sobering thought to end on. Marianne, thank you for being my guide on this uh, wonderful virtual tour of uh, the British countryside by bicycle. I don't know. I'm, my legs don't feel tired in the slightest. Um, it's been great having you on The Bike Show. Thank you so much, Jack. It's been lovely. And your book, Hidden Histories, A Spotter's Guide to the British Landscape. Um, It's chock full of information. Um, There's some lovely photography, um, very useful explanations, uh, diagrammatic explanations to accompany the text. And there are lots of recommendations on actual places uh, that you can go to. And I'm sure it'd be possible to to plan some great bike rides taking in uh, the places in the book. Absolutely, yeah. And um, and if you're if you're of the uh, cycling kind where you you kind of plan where you're headed before you you set off, have a look at an ordnance survey map or, or look online, and you can 
spot all sorts of interesting things that you can kind of go, oh, I might I might keep an eye out for that standing stone or that bit of Gothic writing on the Ordnance Survey map and see what that antiquity is. Thanks again for joining me and thank you for listening to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>